Hello, everybody. I want to give you an update on the show. I'm doing my best to put an episode out every month. That's my 2019 resolution. Uh, but I'm getting pulled in a lot of different directions between work and grad school, and I run a little real estate business. Uh, but I'm committed to seeing this show through. I expect this project's going to take a couple years to make it completely, and that's okay. I'm excited to do it. I just know that it's it's quite a bit of work. Uh, if you have the urge to support the show, you can always do that at useconpodcast.com. There you find a link to my PayPal and also my Patreon. Uh, you can find the Patreon directly at patreon.com forward slash useconpodcast. If you do sign up for a recurring donation on a monthly or per episode basis, I will send you a U.S. History of Economics podcast mug as a thank you. Uh, so I, I am so thankful for the people that have done that. Uh, you can also find the show on Twitter at US Econ Podcast. All right, without further ado, enjoy the show. Thank you. How do you price a human being? Putting a price tag on a life is a strange question. Yet throughout U.S. history until the 1860s, this is a question Americans asked themselves all the time. We're going to explore that question and look at the darkest stain in the history of U.S. economics, that of slavery. The first slaves were brought to North America in the early 1600s after a Dutch captain brought his cargo of 20 Africans to what would later become Georgia. But slavery as we know it now, the forced labor of Africans, didn't catch on for another 50 years or so. Until that point, indentured servants did most of the work that would later be prescribed to African slaves. The only real difference between indentured servants and slaves was that indentured servants worked for some fixed period of time, usually to repay a debt, and then they were set free. Slaves, of course, were forced laborers, in perpetuity. The problem was that indentured servants had to be paid, however little, and their labor had a time limit. Usually a servant worked for five to seven years. Gradually, colonists shifted away from the indentured servants model, in short, because slavery was cheaper and more sustainable. Slaves didn't have to be paid, and didn't have to be set free. It was also customary for an indentured servant to be given some bounty of food, land, and livestock when they were released. But with slavery, none of that applied. Also, indentured servants often continued in their craft after they were set free, which created a competition that the lords could do without. By 1661, Virginia and Massachusetts had passed a version of slavery laws. The dark history of slavery in the U.S. had begun. Over the next 150 years, the colonies banded together, overthrew their British rulers, and created a national constitution. But during that time, slavery also began to lay its roots. By 1800, there were just over 800,000 slaves in the United States, about half of which were imported, and about half of which were born in the U.S., 800,000 was a lot for a country of about 7 million free Americans. In 1807, so about 30 years after the country's independence, the federal government outlawed the importation of slaves. Slavery itself was allowed to continue, but from that point forward, no new slaves could legally be brought into the United States. This law meant that the only way slavery might be sustained was if the birth rate was high enough among Africans already in America. The law also had the effect of driving slave prices higher, now that supply was vastly diminished. Despite the law blocking the importation of slaves, the institution of slavery continued to grow. In fact, slave women were expected to have between 5 to 10 children throughout the course of their lives. 
The pressure to procreate was successful in sustaining the industry of slavery. This is evidenced by the fact that by 1860, on the brink of the Civil War, there were just under 4 million slaves in the U.S., all of them, at that point, having been born in America. It so happened that the slave population grew at a rate 10% faster on average than the growth rate of freemen. It's important to note that the entire New World slave trade forcibly brought overseas about 10.7 million Africans. Those Africans ended up in the countries around the Caribbean islands, Brazil, the U.S., and Saint-Domingue, which would later be renamed Haiti after a successful slave rebellion against the French. In fact, only about 6% of those 10.7 million Africans came to the U.S., but the high birth rates and longer life expectancy of slaves in the U.S. led to America having the largest slave population in the New World by the 1860s. Of that 10.7 million who were brought overseas, by the way, it doesn't include the approximately 2 million Africans who died en route to the New World. The slaves that entered the U.S. were not equally distributed, and the vast majority of them went into the South. Early on in the nation's history, northern states began outlawing slavery. Reasons for this vary somewhat. Some historians opine that slavery never really caught on in the North because of the lack of large-scale agriculture in that region due to geographical reasons, while others say it's because of a particular breed of Protestantism in the North that discouraged slavery. While at least one historian notes that slavery simply couldn't coexist with the notion of liberty pervading New England since the Revolution. While slavery was progressively outlawed in the North, the institution exploded in the South in the early 1800s. Why did it explode? The answer is cotton. Once Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, which could mechanically separate seeds from cotton fibers, the largest bottleneck surrounding cotton production disappeared. The next largest bottleneck was a labor shortage, and to resolve it, southern plantation owners turned to slavery. But even within the South, slaves still weren't distributed equally. In fact, most southerners owned no slaves at all. The wealthiest 10% of southerners owned 85% of slaves, and the wealthiest 25% of Southerners owned all 100% of the slaves. If we consider Southern wealth as the number of slaves that people owned, which many historians do, then the American South is probably the most economically unequal region in the world, and that's just among whites. Economist Albert Nemi in the Journal of Economic History analyzed the South in terms of a Gini coefficient. For anyone who isn't familiar with the Gini coefficient, it's basically a measure of a country's wealth distribution. It ranges from 0 to 100. A 0 would be if everybody in the country had the same amount of wealth, and a 100 would mean that all the country's income is going into one person's pocket. For reference, as of 2016, the United States' Gini coefficient was 41.5. But the South, according to Albert Nimi's work, had a Gini coefficient around 81, near the upper limits of how high a Gini coefficient can realistically go. This insanely high Gini coefficient makes sense when you consider the distribution of slaves. 75% of the white southern population had zero. The South was very much an environment of the haves and the have-nots. And once you factor in the approximately 4 million slaves, it becomes more like the haves, the have-nots, and the have-nothings, with no chance of ever having anything at all. The sheer scale of slavery in the American South is another thing that's hard to wrap one's head around. By all measure, slavery was the largest industry in the United States by a comfortable margin. The largest industry in the North during the mid-1850s was railroads, but even that industry was only valued around a billion dollars, and that's in 1850 The estimated value of slaves at that time was near four billion dollars. 
That meant that Southern slavery was larger than the North's largest industry by a multiple of four. And that's not even including the Southern cash crop of cotton, which itself was enormous. A full one-half of American exports were cotton, and much of the remaining exports were other crops grown in the South. It goes without saying that the South was the money-making center of the United States, pulling in much more money from overseas than the North. This led to the American South becoming arguably the richest region in the entire world in the 1850s. Despite the region's obvious riches, there is some controversy about whether or not slavery enhanced the Southern economy or hindered it. Clearly, slavery was profitable. The question is, however, could the South have accomplished as much or more than it did if it had just used wage labor instead of forced labor? There's a pretty strong case arguing that slavery was in fact an economic hindrance to the South, despite the region's obvious prosperity. This is because there was a tremendous cost to running a plantation full of slaves. Wage labor is a fairly simple transaction. You work for X amount of hours, you receive X amount of dollars. But slavery is much more complicated. To run a plantation, you have to feed, clothe, house, provide medical care, and coerce your labor force, all of which has a cost to it. On top of that, some plantations attempted to use the carrot as well as the stick to motivate their workforce. By this, I mean it wasn't all that uncommon that slaves received some small payment for their work, so plantation owners ended up paying a slight wage anyway. Finally, add to this the exorbitant cost of buying the slave in the first place. A slave could easily cost 10 to 15 times the per capita income of the average white southerner. Yet, despite all these costs, southern capitalists still preferred slavery to wage laborers. How interesting. Even if labor could have been had for cheaper, there were two major reasons why southerners still opted to use slavery. One was that, as I mentioned earlier, slavery was a measure of a person's wealth. And once that dynamic takes hold, it could be very stigmatized for a person to try to break it. I mean, throughout all of human history, slaves have been used as a status symbol. The South was no different. But the more important factor behind why Southern plantation owners would want to use slavery as a labor force, even if it costed more, comes down to credit. Did you know that slaves were not only exploited for the labor in the fields, they were also exploited as collateral for loans? For instance, imagine you own a house and you want to buy a second one. As a down payment for the second house, you take out a loan against the first house, something called a home equity line of credit. People do it all the time nowadays. You take out a loan to buy the second house using your first house as collateral. If you fail to repay the loan, the bank can come and take the collateralized house and sell it, using the proceeds to get its money back. Now, take this example and swap out houses for slaves. Southern slave owners could take out loans against their slaves, using their slaves as collateral. If they defaulted on a loan payment, the bank could come and take the slave as repayment. This is partly why the Gini coefficient in the South showed such a disparity. The plantation owners could leverage their slaves to buy more slaves and more land, using the earnings from the new slaves and new land to pay for the cost of borrowing. Then plantation owners could repeat the process over and over again. In this way, wealth became extremely concentrated in the South. Financially speaking, anyone who didn't have access to a slave simply couldn't keep up with those who did, because they lacked that major source of credit. Having access to the human line of credit, so to speak, is the real reason why southern slave owners preferred to own slaves instead of use wage labor, even if having slaves had a somewhat higher operating cost. Let's take a step back for a moment and consider the economy of the South in its entirety apart from slavery. There's an entire cadre of economists who call the South economically backwards, even though the South was probably the richest region in the world at that time. 
Aside from slavery, here's where the South gets some other hefty criticisms. They had virtually no manufacturing, virtually no factories, the lowest levels of education of any region in the U.S., and poor transportation infrastructure, especially as it related to railroads. The region was critically dependent on the price of cotton, which meant that southern farmers were hit extremely hard whenever cotton prices collapsed, as they did in the 1820s and again in 1837 and 1839. I've already talked about how leveraged southern farmers were in other episodes, so even slight fluctuations in the cotton price could have disastrous effects on economic productivity. The South's dependence on cotton also created this permanent disequilibrium between supply and demand. On the one hand, when cotton prices were high, southern farmers raced to grow more and more of it, bidding the price of slaves and real estate up along the way. But as more cotton farms went online, the supply of cotton began to saturate the market. And as this happened, the price of cotton fell. Consequently, overleveraged farmers were forced to sell their slaves and their land in order to settle their debts. This, of course, pushed land and slave prices down until the cycle repeated itself. It was the equivalent to a bursting of a bubble. This ongoing cycle of economic feast and famine held the region's economy hostage, even if that volatility became a way of life for Southerners. Despite the growth and collapse of southern fortunes along with the price of cotton, the lure of cotton riches was too much for most southerners to ignore, which leads me to the next reason why the southern economy is considered backwards. I've seen several different estimates of the rate of return of the slave industry, ranging from 7 to 17% per year. Let's take the average and go from there. 12% was the rate of return a person could expect from owning a slave. That's a lot. Most investors nowadays would be tripping over themselves for a steady 12% return on investment. But that's exactly where the problem resided. 12% was so alluring that Southerners rarely put their money into anything else. In other words, slavery became this sort of gravity well that sucked up time, resources, and money, meaning that other industries never saw the light of day. While the northern economy was busy diversifying itself into steel manufacturing and the weapons industry, railroads, shipping, and finance, these sectors never managed to gain a meaningful foothold in the South. Southerners were asking themselves, why would anybody put their money into a risky startup, and one that will have to compete with mature Northern and European industries, when they could put their money into slavery and get a smug 12% return? Slavery became this black hole of Southern wealth, which caused the economy to become homogenous to a fault. When the Civil War finally broke out, the North exploited the South's lack of a non-agricultural economy and immediately blockaded southern port cities. Then, having no one with whom to trade, all those southern cotton plantations meant little when it came to the war effort. Cotton couldn't feed hungry southern mouths or arm southern soldiers. The resulting food and weapon shortages were a significant hindrance to the South during the upcoming Civil War. So there's another reason why slavery hindered the southern economy. Because of the profits of slavery and cotton, the southern economy failed to diversify, which made the region highly sensitive to asset price fluctuations as well as northern naval blockades. And this takes us full circle back to the question with which I opened this episode. With so much wealth pouring into the slave industry and so much demand for slaves, how did slave owners go about putting a price tag on their fellow human beings? To approach this issue, one has to strip the humanity out of the equation and think of it in purely financial terms. I talked about financial theory a little bit in the last episode, about how an asset's value is the discounted sum of that asset's future cash flows. With slavery, it was no different. Southerners looked at slaves as if they were shares of stock, 
And just like how investors today perform due diligence on stocks they might buy, asking themselves questions like, does this company have positive earnings? Or does this company have a good P.E. ratio? Slave buyers perform due diligence too. Except they would ask questions like, does this slave have any history of disease? Or any history of running away? How are this person's teeth, their muscles, their eyes? The South managed to turn human beings into nothing more than mere commodities. If a buyer was satisfied with the slave, physically speaking, they then estimated how much cotton that person could pick. This was how the slave buyer figured out the future cash flows of that human being. If the slave was a child, that lowered the person's price because children couldn't pick as quickly as people in their 20s, which pushed the break even on that investment further out into the future. The same goes for elderly people who couldn't pick as quickly as their younger counterparts. If the slave was a woman, the buyer would factor in the cash flows of not only the cotton that woman could pick, but also the price of her children, which he could sell. If the buyer thought he wouldn't sell that woman's children, he assumed that the children would be in the fields picking cotton by the age of six. All of this was factored into the future cash flows which that female slave might bring to her owner. You can imagine how much the price of cotton would affect the price of slaves then. If cotton prices went up, the present value of that slave's future cash flows went up as well, and likewise if cotton prices went down. You can also imagine how different regions might value slaves differently. For example, in the exhausted soils of the eastern coastline, plantations couldn't produce as much cotton as the rich soils of the Mississippi Delta. Therefore, slaves would go for cheaper in the eastern coastal regions than along the Mississippi. This gave rise to the whole industry of slave trading, where someone might buy, say, 20 slaves for $600 apiece in South Carolina, and then walk them in chains the 650 or so miles to an auction in New Orleans, where they might sell for $1,100 per person. Up until the 1840s and 1850s, the North tacitly approved of slavery in the South. In fact, the North was happy to trade manufactured goods for Southern money earned on the backs of slaves. But around that time, Northern tolerance of slavery began to fade. The reason had to do with the shifting balance of power in Congress as it related to the issues of Northern versus Southern economic ideals. As we know, around the mid-19th century, the U.S. grew in territory dramatically, snatching up huge swaths of land from Britain, Mexico, and the Native Americans. Regarding the territory of the last two, Mexico and the Native Americans, Southern farmers put great pressure on the federal government to militarily expand American territory in the southwestward direction so as to allow Southern farmers to expand the cotton fields. President Andrew Jackson, a proponent of Southern small government ideals, and a slave owner himself, took up this cause of Southern territorial expansion, overseeing the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and the infamous Trail of Tears, where roughly 50,000 Native Americans were forcibly marched westward to free up lands for cotton cultivation. An estimated 15,000 would not survive the journey. Southern expansion like this occurred because once the cotton gin solved the efficiency bottleneck for cotton farming, and slavery solved the labor bottleneck, the next bottleneck was a land shortage. Louisiana, Arkansas, and Texas, territories that offered a solution to the land bottleneck, all became victims of southern cotton growers, the Native Americans who stood in the way of slavery's expansion even more so. Thinking geopolitically now, all the new territories entering the United States began to sway the balance of representation in Congress towards southern economic ideals which were greatly at odds with the northern economic ideals, a conflict that crystallized back in the days of Hamilton and Jefferson. Jefferson, you'll remember, wanted what he called an agrarian democracy, and a federal government with limited power. 
Meanwhile, Hamilton wanted a powerful central bank which pumped tremendous investment into manufacturing and industry. This division emerged in year one of the country's existence. Fast forward 80 years to the Civil War, and it's clear the political divisions between North and South never really healed. If anything, the wound became infected and purulent. Add to the festering economic differences, an idea that caught on among many Northern Protestants that slavery was immoral, I even read one account that called it a sin along the lines of murder, and the cultural, economic, political, and ideological interests of the North and South became increasingly disparate. So, slavery became the proxy of North versus South economic differences, and hence became the target for Northern politicians. If there were a more evident indication of the two sides' economic interests, it might have become the straw that broke the country's back. But slavery was a clear enough symbol of Southern economic interests, and so the North aimed to try to stop its expansion, and by extension, the Southern economic model, which centered on agrarianism and yeoman farmers, instead of industrialism. With all the new territory entering the Union after the growth of the 1840s and 1850s, the issue of slavery itself became the high-stakes proxy for whether or not a state would lean towards southern economic ideals of a small, limited government, or northern ones of a central bank, extensive tariffs, and an expansive and powerful federal government. But regarding slavery, I'm hesitant to ascribe the moral high ground to the North. There were, after all, many in the North who did not oppose slavery, and there was virtually no one in the North who felt black people were equal to white people in most respects. Regardless, the issue of slavery and the economic ideals for which it stood became incredibly heated, and ultimately, its protection became the impetus for the South seceding from the Union, precipitating the Civil War. Leading up to that crisis, most politicians recognized that slavery was the hot-button issue of the day, but resolving that issue was perpetually delayed until the day of reckoning that was the Civil War. As new states entered the Union, politicians kicked the can down the road, so to speak, by passing laws like the Missouri Compromise and the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which attempted to bring both pro-slavery and anti-slavery states into the Union together so as not to upset the delicate balance of representatives in Congress. But those laws were only band-aids on the issue of slavery, and by extension, the issue of incompatible economic ideals. Eventually, the issue had to come to a head. So the stage is set for the Civil War. Slavery, a proxy for Southern small government and agrarianism, has become the battleground where Northern politicians are picking their fight. As the country continues to expand westward, the issue of the balance of representation in Congress has been pushed to the forefront, which is where we'll pick up in the next episode. Before wrapping up this episode, I want to comment on the progress of capitalist ideology as it relates to the American economic system. The Archangels of Capitalism, Adam Smith and David Ricardo, are remembered partly for their work proving that if people and countries could specialize in production, then they could supercharge their productivity and well-being. In other words, Smith argued that if individuals focused on doing one task really well, instead of a hundred tasks moderately well, then the overall production of a system would increase. Ricardo took this way of thinking even farther and said that if entire countries could focus on producing a few goods really well, instead of trying to produce all the goods in the economy, then that entire country would become more efficient and more profitable. As it relates to increasing productivity, the antebellum South is evidence that Smith and Ricardo were right. However, as it relates to how to create a nation with a high level of genuine well-being, Smith and Ricardo were dead wrong, when their ideas were taken to the extreme, as the classical economists advocated. Plantations had slaves focus on a few tasks, 
Picking cotton was the most common, and slaves became experts in that skill. Historians note that during the antebellum period, cotton picking efficiency went up nearly 400%. Of course, that has to do partly with the increasingly innovative coercion methods, such as the whipping machine. That productivity increase is also at least partly due to the specialization of labor among slaves. Taking a page from Ricardo's book, the South as a whole focused on production of cotton, the commodity in which the region had a comparative advantage. As a result, the South did become exorbitantly rich. If we consider the South as an example, Adam Smith's notion of a specialization of labor among individuals and David Ricardo's idea of comparative advantage among nations both seem like integral parts of a nation's equation if it wants to become rich. But notice I said rich, not wealthy. In The Wealth of Nations, Smith puts forth the idea that a country's wealth is not measured by the gold and silver that that nation possesses, but rather, it's measured by the goods and services that nation produces for its people to consume, a proxy for one's quality of life. If we use Adam Smith's definition of wealth, then the South was actually quite poor compared to the North. The North, after all, was undergoing a consumer revolution. Factory jobs in the North were popping up by the thousands, which created an entirely new class of society, the employed middle class. This growing demographic had a growing quantity of discretionary income, which pressured business competition and innovation on a scale never before known. All this pressure had the effect of ramping up northern production of various goods and services to meet the demands of the new working class, diversifying the economy along the way, and increasing the general well-being. But the South missed out on all this. The South's quest for cotton and slaves kept wealth highly concentrated in the hands of the few. They didn't have factory jobs or a rising proletariat working class like the North. Therefore, there was comparatively lesser demand for mass market businesses or the goods and services that increased the general well-being. The economy of the South remained extremely concentrated on agriculture, so the goods and services of the region stayed concentrated as well. Another way of saying this is that while the economy of the North developed horizontally, that of the South developed vertically. The upshot of Southern economic hyperspecialization is that, ironically, though Adam Smith and David Ricardo tried to reconstruct the notion of wealth as the amount of goods and services that a nation produces, they actually outlined the framework to create a nation of just the opposite. A hyper-specialized economy such as that of the South, though it resulted in tremendous monetary gain for the rich Southern elite, it did not bring universal prosperity. It brought just the opposite. The whole point behind the wealth of nations is to get away from the idea that a nation's gold and silver were the measure of a nation's wealth. Yet, when taken to its extreme, as it was in the antebellum South, Smith and Ricardo's ideas led to a country rich in gold and silver, yet poor in the general welfare. This episode started out by asking the question, how does one put a price tag on a human being? We discussed that Southern slave owners considered investments in slaves the same way that professionals today consider investments in stocks. They estimated how much cotton a person could pick and used that to estimate the person's future cash flows. Slave owners then discounted the cash flows back to today and summed it up to get a present value of that human being. We also made the case for why slavery was actually an economic hindrance to the South, despite the South's riches. Along this vein, I pointed out that slavery as a labor source was probably more expensive than just employing wage laborers, but slave owners were willing to pay more to have slaves because it enabled Southerners to take out loans using slaves as collateral. 
Slavery was also a hindrance to the southern economy because it caused the region to become economically homogenous. Everyone wanted to put their money into slaves and cotton plantations, leaving infrastructure, education, manufacturing, and industry to the wayside. Though the mad pursuit of cotton and slavery did cause tremendous amounts of cash to pool into the hands of a select few plantation owners, it didn't add to the wealth of the region where a majority of whites and nearly all blacks existed in a spectrum ranging from moderate to abject poverty. For all its criticisms, though, the South created the nation's most valuable industry in slavery. When the North resolved to liberate the literally billions of dollars worth of human capital and destroy the economic ideals upon which the South was built, it's little surprise that Southerners took up arms to defend it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of U.S. Economics Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, follow the show on Twitter, at useconpodcast.